Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. In the mid-19th century, Lexington would witness a devastating outbreak of the cholera, not once, but twice. The first epidemic would come to the city of about 7,000 inhabitants in the summer of 1833, killing 500 people. The waterborne bacteria would seep into the city's water source, infecting the young and the old. Then again in 1849, an outbreak would affect cities in the state of Kentucky and many other states, and among those killed were former President James K. Polk and hundreds of people seeking gold in the rush of 1849. In tragedy, families are devastated by loss, and yet heroes emerge. We hope to highlight their stories and preserve a piece of Lexington history through this next series of podcasts. You will hear the stories of William King Solomon and Aunt Charlotte, and the orphanage that emerged through the philanthropic efforts of Mariah Gratz, as well as the home of the friendless that would eventually become Ashland Terrace. As always, thank you for spending your time with us and listening. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today on the podcast, we have J.P. Johnson. J.P. is a library associate at Central's Kentucky Room. He's also the county coordinator for the Muhlenberg County and Fayette County Kentucky Gen web pages. He will be talking to us about William King Solomon. King Solomon was a well-known local vagrant turned hero during Lexington's cholera outbreak of 1833. It is a fascinating piece of Lexington history. Take it away, J.P. Thank you, Miriam. The rain on August 5, 1908 may have lessened the crowd, but still 500 Lexingtonians came to Woodland Park Auditorium to be entertained, to dance, and to raise money for a monument to King Solomon. There was attorney Charles Kerr who opened the festivities with a sketch of King Solomon's life. How Solomon came to Kentucky with Henry Clay was a drunkard auctioned off under the law and became a hero and a legend. This was followed by five-year-old Mary McMeekin who danced two steps, waltzes, floridoras, barn dances, skirt dances, Buck and Wing, and won the hearts of all. Douglas Stevenson, accompanied by Miss Lily Stuckey, sang a third song after his first two were so well received. Louis Mazenheimer sang two songs, after which McKeeben Kimbrough put on the country band, which had been so popular in the auditorium the year before. There was more singing and dancing, a male quartet, Messieurs Grubb and Wright played two numbers on the mandolin and guitar, and of course it being this time and this place and these people, 1908, Lexington, Kentucky, there was a piece of grand opera and songs performed in blackface. Three hours of entertainment netted about $100 for the King Solomon Memorial Association, around $1,200 in today's money. The King Solomon Memorial Association was founded just the preceding May by John Wilson Townsend and James Nichol. Townsend believed King Solomon's gravestone at Lexington Cemetery no longer sufficed. It was a simple headstone placed in 1897 by Charles S. Bell, the cemetery caretaker, who'd grown tired of embarrassing questions about where Solomon was buried and whether he was truly buried there. King Solomon, the hero of the cholera plague of 1833, it was decided, needed something grander to remember him by. It was 1908, and Lexington was in the midst of deciding what stories were to be told about itself, who was to be commemorated, and who best represented Lexington's mythical past and bright future, or at least a certain part of it. 
At the same time that Townsend and Nickel were attempting to bring together the funds for a monument to Solomon, on West 6th Street, Pompeo Campini, a New York sculptor, was working on a statue of John Hunt Morgan riding his horse Bess. And on Main Street, workers were excavating for the foundation of that statue in front of the courthouse. So the King Solomon Memorial Association was formed, letters of invitation were written, and money was raised. James Lane Allen was offered the role of association president, and he, by letter, accepted. At the time, James Lane Allen, not yet the name of a school or a street, lived in New York City and was a nationally known literary figure, Kentucky and Lexington's first widely read author. In 1891, he had published the short story King Solomon of Kentucky, making Solomon and Allen national figures. Writing for Harper's Magazine, author and literary critic William Dean Howe commented, The gods do not often deal so handsomely by a mortal as they did by Mr. James Lane Allen in putting such material as King Solomon of Kentucky in his hands, and he has not shown himself insensible of the value of their gifts. By most accounts, William King Solomon was a ditch digger by trade, but most notably a drunk and a vagrant. A worthless fellow, unwashed, unkempt, lazy, smoking, drinking, in rags, he wandered the Lexington streets, picking up discarded cigar stubs and accepting every drink that was offered him. He worked only when he cared to and spent most days and nights waking up on the front steps of this or that business, or more likely being woken up in the morning by the prod of the boot of some businessman trying to open up or some police officer trying to get Solomon to move on to go home. In 1833, when the cholera swept into Lexington, Solomon was, according to James Lane Allen, in the very prime of his life, a striking figure, for nature at least had truly done some royal work on him. Over six feet in height, erect, with limbs well-shaped and sinewy, with chest and neck full of the lines of great power, a large head thickly covered with long reddish hair, eyes blue, face beardless, complexion fair, but discolored by low passions and excesses. His mouth was described as sensual, his bearing was great, lazy, gentle, and good-humored. He seemed like a man who has drained his cup of human life and has nothing left him but to fill again and drink without the least surprise or eagerness. And drink again and again he did, until finally under the vagrant law of 1792, a law aimed at the idle and provident white citizens of Kentucky, William Solomon was auctioned off from the courthouse steps for a period of nine months' labor. Being poor and indifferent to work was a crime, one that Solomon had committed impressively and repeatedly. Charlotte, a free woman of color, won the bid for $13. She and Solomon knew each other in both Virginia and in Lexington. He had a room at her home, and at least in Allen's short story, she had specifically come to the courthouse that day to buy and free him. In winning, Charlotte had saved Solomon from more than work. She'd bid against Transylvania University medical students who potentially looked at Solomon as a future cadaver. After being set free, Solomon spent the rest of the day on Main Street, drinking, allowing that still small world to pass him by in the haze of heat and drink, and later in the evening he watched men and women arrive for a ball in the dancing rooms over Giron's confectionery. Three days later he would come to in his room at Charlotte's, and many in the town would already be dead or dying. Cholera is a bacterial infection in humans of the small intestine, typically caused by drinking contaminated water. Risk factors include poor sanitation, not enough clean drinking water, and poverty. Symptoms include severe vomiting and diarrhea and can kill in hours. But it would be 1854 before the cause of cholera would be identified. Betty Lee Maston in the Lexington Herald in 1981 wrote, People died some within six hours after the first symptoms. 
Legs grew stiff. There was a feeling of a rush of blood from the feet upward, excruciating pain, violent nausea, and diarrhea. So many died that they lay shoveled into trenches and buried at the cemetery gates or alone in their houses. But cholera was thought to be airborne, and Lexington's elevation was expected to keep its residents safe. No one knew that sickness and death were in the water. The summer of 1833 was hot. Before indoor plumbing, Lexington had a handful of bathhouses for both cleaning the body and for cooling the skin. Oldham's Baths was on Main Street near Postlethwaite's Hotel, which stood at the location of the Phoenix Hotel in the present-day Lexington Public Library downtown. Oldham's advertised plunging and shower baths of warm, tepid, or cold water. The warm and tepid water recommended to both the healthy and invalids. The benefits of warm or tepid bathing, especially during the summer and autumnal season, are not generally understood. To say nothing of the comfortable and pleasant feeling produced by it, it is one of the best preservatives of health. By keeping the skin in a proper condition, it may be made to do much in guarding against cholera. Lonnie's bath stood on Water Street, and though somewhat out of the way, perhaps the more desirable for being retired, this is the season of bathing, and the good people of our city will not neglect what experience and the doctors concur in recommending as at once delightful and salubrious. Certainly no threat of cholera is necessary to make people cleanly. In 1833, the town branch was at surface level and ran along Water Street. Town branch was not only the source for most of the city's drinking water, it was also park, cow field, and sewer. And in the heat of summer, the citizens of Lexington were being exhorted to come bathe in the water. So James Lane Allen can be forgiven if it sounds like he took a page from Poe in describing the coming cholera. Then, flying low and heavily through drought and tempest and frost and plague, like the royal presence of disaster that had been but heralded by its mournful train, came nearer and nearer the dark angel of pestilence. By August, 272 people had died. The Kentucky Reporter published the first list of the dead. One in 12 people would die, while almost a third of the population of about 6,000 fled in panic. By the end of the season, in total, 500 people would be dead, and Lexington would be home to a new population of orphaned children. Robert Davidson writes in History of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky, the burying ground was choked, coffins were laid down at the gates in confused heaps, and among them, corpses wrapped up only in the bedclothes in which they had but an hour or two before expired. There they lay, each waiting their turn to be deposited in the long trenches, hastily dug for the necessities of the occasion in the Main Street graveyard. By the time William Solomon came to, two days after Charlotte had bought him on the courthouse steps, a wave of death and panic was rolling across the city. Solomon awoke to find his world much changed. Charlotte was preparing to flee the city, but when Solomon stayed, she stayed with him. In recounting his transformation in 1901, the Lexington leader wrote that Solomon threw off his chrysalis and flew the gorgeous colors of royal state. One thing Solomon knew, he could handle the pick and the shovel, and during that dread experience in the old Baptist burying ground, he worked almost night and day, laying beneath the sod the bodies of people, many of whom he had never known. Often, when laboring late into the night, he would fall asleep in the gruesome trench and rest until morning. When the plague was over, the butterfly crawled into its abandoned shell and became the grub again. It is unclear what happened to Charlotte after the cholera died down that year. One report is stated that she died while helping Solomon bury the dead, and he then buried her as well. According to James Lane Allen's short story, she survived and was somewhat applauded for the support she gave Solomon. 
It should be pointed out that if she hadn't bought Solomon on that Thursday in June, he possibly would have not been around to do what needed to be done, and the total deaths from cholera could have been much higher. In 1940, the city of Lexington built a 206-family unit housing project in the historically black neighborhood on Georgetown Street near Douglas Park and named it Charlotte Court. Though Charlotte Court became known as a center of poverty and crime, it was also the home of a close-knit community. Charlotte Court residents regularly held reunions of the community and block parties to raise money for residents' medical expenses. However, in 1999, at a ceremony to start raising Charlotte Court, the executive director of the Lexington Housing Authority proclaimed, We stand here unified and unapologetically to rid this city of this hellhole. Charlotte Court was torn down and replaced by lower-density housing. William Solomon was living in a Lexington poorhouse when he died in 1854. According to one report, he was also instrumental in the cholera outbreak in 1849, and that it was the cholera that killed him in 1854, though his obituary in the Kentucky Statesman does not confirm either statement. All of our citizens acknowledged his special claims upon their regard for his services during the prevalence of the cholera in 1833 when he has heroically devoted himself to digging graves for the victims of the scourge, while almost all others under the influence of panic had deserted. In 1908, Townsend and Nichol got their monument, and though his imminent arrival to the festivities was almost daily announced, it was noted that James Lane Allen was absent throughout. Allen did not appear on that rainy August 5th for the dancing and singing, nor did he appear September 10 to judge the King Solomon Prize Poem Contest, won by a Mrs. S.R. Cohen, a Lexington poetess. Nor did he appear during King Solomon Week, the week of September 19th, when the prize, a collection of Allen's books autographed, was awarded a celebratory entertainment held at Transylvania University or when the monument to King Solomon was unveiled. Rather, he sent a speech which was read by Judge James H. Mulligan. Allen's speech was a call to memorialize the dead, but there is no nobler or more eloquent way in which a state can set forth its annals than by memorializing its great dead. Its monuments are its memories. Here is a people who are great in both their hopes and in their memories and who live doubly through the deeds of their dead. 1908 was a year of monuments and for Lexington to decide who was to be part of its collective memory and how. In the September 20th, 1908 Lexington leader, author-cum-banker Edwin Litsey, who had attended the memorial dedication, wrote a brief and melodramatic article in appreciation of the movement to perpetuate the memory of King Solomon and impress the lesson of his life. Litsey wrote, Subjecting the temple of his soul to all sorts of abuse, living a life without aim and without purpose other than the gratification of desires of the flesh, at the crucial hour he arose in his debased might, in his imperial besottedness. It was a time which showed the stuff of which men were made, which stripped off superficiality and bared the naked soul. Solomon couldn't simply be a man who did what came naturally to him, the digging of trenches and drinking. He had to be a lesson. Even in death, King Solomon has to do some heavy lifting. We remember him for what he did and for what we hope we are capable of doing. Of the stories Lexington commemorated with Stone in 1908, the story of King Solomon potentially is the least problematic, but surely also one of the more confusing tidbits of Lexington history. Every generation has its moment of picking up the story of King Solomon and retelling it, and with every retelling, some if not all the details change. In 1897, the Lexington Herald wrote, to many of the later generations who read his singular story, Old King Solomon may well seem a myth, a historic legend, or a mysterious character in a town fable. 
All the reading world has been made familiar with his figure in James Lane Allen's beautiful story, which has immortalized him in literature, a place where he surely never expected to be. After a hot day on the courthouse steps, William King Solomon is bought for $13 by Charlotte, a free woman of color, who sets him free because, as she says, those white men would work him to death. Charlotte sends him on his way, and she returns to selling her pies and bread. In the evening, Solomon finds himself across the street from Francois Zopi's dancing rooms, where the ladies and gentlemen of Lexington are gathering for a ball. It is the night before the world briefly ends. Whenever catastrophe strikes, there is always a bright, joyful moment of before, and this is Solomon's, written by James Lane Allen. He too had attended Monsieur Zopi's ball, in his own way and in his proper character, being drawn to the place for the pleasure of seeing the fine ladies arrive and float in like large white moths of the summer night, of looking in through the open windows at the many-colored waxen lights and the snowy arms and shoulders, of having blown out to him the perfume and the music, not worthy to go in, being the lowest of the low, but attending from the doorstep of the street opposite, with a certain rich passion in his nature for splendor and revelry and sensuous beauty. Thank you, JP. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.